You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. The following is from CTK Sunday Night Open Leadership with Dr. Dan Butler. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. You can be seated. It is a joy to be here tonight with you. And this little thing just popped off my belt. And, you know, if you don't mind, I'm just going to slide this thing here out of the way. And, man, that's heavy. It's heavy. Woo. And just have some time here together tonight. I do count it again a privilege, honor to be here. I appreciate so much your pastor. I honor him. He and his wonderful wife, God bless them, and happy birthday. And we love you. And I am thrilled with the leadership that I see here. Uh, The shepherd doesn't walk ahead of the sheep, and the shepherd doesn't drive the sheep from behind. The shepherd walks in the middle of the flock with the sheep, sensitive to their needs, at times going up ahead and pulling them back, at other times going to the back and pulling them up. And just uh, this is a man of God that knows what it is to broaden the bandwidth of, of ministry as he's drawing, calling more of you into leadership and spreading the load to be increasingly effective in kingdom. And I just appreciate it. You don't see this just everywhere. And actually, uh, it's God-given gifts, and uh, you just see it emerging in Him and growing in you and growing with you, and it's a joy. Praise God. Praise God. So a famous uh, leadership uh, guru in the secular world and business by the name of Peter Druckard said there's three questions to ask. So, of course, this is corporate business, but concerning the church, we, <laughs> we are a corporation and we are a business. We just happen to manage the greatest business in the universe, and we happen to do it on a volunteer staff. So <laughs> that's extremely interesting. But uh, the questions are asked, three questions Peter Druckert says must be asked. Number one is, who are we? As a, as a corporate body, who are we? And then we can drill on down, who am I individually as I factor my life into involvement in, in the body? And let me move away from corporate stuff into the body. Yeah. And so number two is, um, what is my job? What is our job? Who am I? What is our task? What are we doing? And the third question is, how do we get the job done? So the single biggest question is, how do we do this? Or maybe the single biggest question is, who am I? Or maybe the single biggest question is, what is my task? So I'd say wherever I'm deficient, hopefully we have an understanding of who we are, that we're sons of God, kids of God, that uh, we are members of the body in particular. That's a quote from Paul, members of his body in particular. And uh, we are also members of the bride. And who are we? Well, we are uh, C, let's see, Christ, what's the name of our church here? Christ. CTK. Yes. CTK. This is who we are. 
We, somebody said, who do you preach to? Asked me that years ago, and I thought, man, who do I preach to? I preach to lots of people. No, I really, I, I end up preaching to myself, and I preach to what feels to be a cloud in the center of the auditorium. Just there's the identity of the church and molding the family. And uh, who are we? And then uh, what is our task? Well, our task, Jesus gave us in, uh, we call it Great Commission. What is it? To go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right. teaching them to observe all things. So when you look at that in the Greek text, there's only one imperative. There's only one command there. And uh, the command is, this is, new, this is customary Hebraic style of writing and thinking because we in the Western culture think in linear terms. We uh, create outlines with a Roman numeral one followed by an A, B, and a C, and then Roman numeral two, and it just is a linear type thought. That's the way we're ingrained and made uh, in the Western culture, but the Hebraic culture thought in concentric circles. So they would have their main thought in the center and it'd be surrounded concentrically. And actually, when you study writings of like the epistles and what have you, now you can make sense out of it. It's not just Paul running huge uh, run-in sentences as much as he's building concentric circles with, with uh, what's called inclusio, markings at the beginning and the endings. And so... We see the same thing in the Great Commission. We see three participles, which in English, we would define a participle basically as taking, it's a verbal, converting a verb into a noun by adding an ing. So you take the word run, add an ing, running, then becomes the noun, the noun of the verb. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying because we have make, make disciples in the center and it's surrounded with the participle going, surrounded with participle baptizing, surrounded with participle teaching. So we're going, baptized, teaching, going, baptized, teaching in the process to make, the only imperative, to make disciples. That is what the master mandated of us is to make disciples. And if that's our task, we cannot make disciples without first us being a disciple. I can't I can't replicate someone else to learn. Incidentally, in the Hebrew mindset, uh, there's no real such word for teaching from separated from learning. Teaching and learning have the same root in the Hebrew language. So uh, teaching is not teaching unless there's someone learning. And learning is not learning unless, yeah, somebody has taught it. But it's more of the something caught rather than something taught. So uh, this is what Jesus wants us to be and do is to learn to be disciples, which, of course, are followers. That's kind of the weak translation. Better is a concept of apprenticeship, that I am apprentice to the Lord Jesus, where the number one, I do what he did and uh, I do it, I watch him do it, and then I do it with him, and then I do it by myself as he watches me, as I am an apprentice. So, for example, why on earth did Peter get out there and walk on the water? Well, he walks on the water because Jesus said, come, and, and Peter is a good apprentice. So he's simply obeying and doing 
as uh, he sees modeled in front of him. He thought this was the business of the disciple was to follow the lead of the, the teacher, the mentor, and he's going to learn and grow. And now we watch Simon Peter that's like out of bounds in, I mean, what's out of bounds in the natural order in his followership. And I wonder if that's not the will of God for all of us to go out of bounds in followership. In other words, into the supernatural, right. wherever he wants to guide and lead us. Right. Hallelujah. Right. And so we are first to be disciples so that we can make disciples. And therefore, that is our job. And then the third question is, how do we get the job done? And so a gentleman by the name of Michael Hendricks served for 20 years as a discipleship pastor in a mega church. That's his job. He's a, he's a discipleship pastor making disciples according to the tradition of that particular church. And after 20 years, he felt extremely frustrated and quit. He felt that he had been beat up. And he ran across a gentleman who calls himself a neurotheologian. Uh, who sat at the feet of uh, Dallas Willard, Willard, if anybody knows that name, was one of my professors at Fuller, and uh, as well as uh, Wilder encountered a UCA, UC, UCLA psychologist by the name of Alan Shore. And so Alan Shore did research on the human emotion with staggering discovery uh, as he first of all traced how the brain works in regard to learning. How do we learn? And he took it all the way back to not just infant, but to childbirth. How does a brand new born baby learn? And it was learned, it was discovered that uh, our first learning is all what's considered from the right brain. And so right brain, of course, left brain connects to logic. People kind of do that. L stands for logic, the logical brain. Uh, right brain is the creative piece, the relational piece, the, the artsy area. But the fact is all of our stimuli is processed through right brain first. Even to this day, everybody in this room any stimuli comes right brain first where it's perceived, it's received through the five senses or six or seven senses, ever how many you want to say we have. But uh, from our senses, all of that information is truncated and processed and sent into right in the center of the brain where it's distributed first right brain. It'll go up an axis through the right brain, come behind the right eye and do a U-turn before it enters left brain where it gets processed logically. And that process takes about six-tenths of a second. So right brain is operating six-tenths of a second faster than his left brain, and that's literally for everybody in this room. So one day I was walking in our neighborhood, and, and uh, Brother Andrew, all of a sudden I felt something hit my ankle. And, and then it hit it again, and I heard a sound go, and I immediately thought, before I even thought, rattlesnake. And next thing was, I was at the edge of one neighbor's property, and I ran through the entire next neighbor's property and got over there at the third neighbor's property when it dawned on me six-tenths of a second later 
that that was not a rattlesnake, that was their sprinklers going off. <laughs> and it was, it was the air coming out of that sprinkle line hitting my ankle, and of course the sound was clearing the line before the water would spray. And so then I, I'm standing over there, and I'm looking all around. Oh, I hope nobody saw me. That had to look ridiculous. I mean, it's like I just took off in a flash. It's, it's like my body moved and left my head back. My head had to catch up to my body. I was gone in a flash. I was getting away from that rattler, you know. And, of course, that's because it's the way we all operate. Everything's processed, right brain first, hit the amygdala, sent off fight and flight, adrenalized heavily. I'm over there in the next lawn. And uh, again, then six tenths of a second later, it hits my logical side. And I thought, oh, yeah, you look like an idiot right now. <laughs> and so, but that's, again, the way that, that we're, we're built. That's the way we think. Well, we discovered through the research of Alan Shore that the right brain is developing first, literally begins that development in the womb. And then upon birth, it is uh, receiving programming that, of course, is going to be with it literally all of its life. The very powerful, most formative years are the first months, weeks, days of child existence. And uh, just an FYI, somewhere about the ninth month, there is a flipping in the switch psychologically in a child, and the child determines at nine months whether or not it's a safe world or an unsafe world. So if it's been raised in a secure environment, child then develops an adventuresome type of an approach to life, and it's a safe world. They're not going to be frightened so easily, but if they feel it's unsafe, then they really develop more of a, a, an outlook of vigilante, always watching out, concern. It's an unsafe world. It goes with them throughout their entire life. So again, these early weeks and months are the most important. And for years, it was thought that the very first emotion that uh, anybody would feel would be fear, that as soon as you're born, boom. And, you know, back in my day, we got swatted. Brother John Romine is in this room somewhere. And uh, yeah, I don't remember that day, but at least they tell me about it. My dad wasn't even on the floor. My dad was, they wouldn't put... They wouldn't let him on the same floor with us when we were born. We're in the hospital on another floor. I don't know what they thought about the men that, you know, were involved in this project. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> dad was relegated to floor two. Mom's up on floor three. And uh, I don't remember it, but I'm sure it came that swat because they wanted me to take a deep breath. And, of course, finally they got rid of that program. I do believe they didn't do it to my son. And I was in the room, hallelujah, when, when he was born. <laughs> But uh, they thought fear was the first emotion. And then psychology helped us understand. All the research taught us that our brain is not just one organ. Our brain is comprised of many, many organs. And one of those organs is wrapping right around the very brain stem. First is an organ called the hippocampus. And around the hippocampus in a horseshoe shape is an organ called the amygdala that is the center for Two sister emotions, we call them emotions, but again, this is in debate, anxiety and uh, fear, or I'm sorry, anxiety and anger. Anger and anxiety are both contained in the amygdala. So the reason the debate is because the amygdala is an organ. It is literally filled up by chemicals, and it's 100% programmable. It's nice to know you can reprogram your anger. 
You can reprogram your anxiety. It's 100% programmable. And it's like a container. When it's full, you bump it, it splashes out. You all found people that are angry people, right? They just splash out or anxious people, their anxieties. You can feel their spirit before you even get to them. But uh, that amygdala is filled to the top. So the baby, of course, the amygdala is supercharged. Now it's all of a sudden in a brand new world, cast out of mama's womb, and all the safety and stuff is gone, it, you know, it thinks. And now uh, it, is, it is a chemical reaction of fear, which is why it's debated whether or not it's an emotion. So most psychologists don't think that fear is the, bo the first emotion but rather it is a physiological response that's contained inside the amygdala. And so Alan Shore got to researching what then is the first emotion. And of course, then many people defaulted to, well, it is love. However, Alan Shore discovered in his research that the first emotion that the brand newborn would feel would be that of joy. Before love would be joy and defined by Alan Shore as what you feel, what I would feel when I sense Brother Andrew Romine is happy to see me, or when Brother John Romine is happy to see me, I feel joy. Vice versa, when he senses that I'm happy to see him, he feels joy. Joy being the definition of what I feel when I sense you're happy that I'm here. Well, I do believe that uh, it is a gift from God what Jesus described when he said uh, that right now you have sorrow, but you're soon going to have joy as the woman hath anguish in childbirth, but she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. That, that joy, I believe, is divine. I believe that it is a function of what I describe, what I will say is the chesed. Somebody says, what is chesed? Chesed is the Hebrew word for love, and the reason I like chesed and incidentally, it's the hate at the beginning. Many people pronounce it hesed, and, and uh, there is a, a hate at, uh, a hate which, uh, I forget which letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but very close to it is, a, is the hate. <laughs> One is a hate and the other is a hate. And, and so hesed is spelled with the hate at the beginning, and the proper enunciation is hate, hate. <laughs> with the little guttural of, of the Hebrew language. At any rate, uh, we understand, of course, love is very, very uh, weak in our language, right? That love is so fluffy, so almost meaningless. And uh, you can love all kinds of stuff. And it turns, and anybody in this room knows Spanish, that they will avoid a lot of our English vernacular because they can't put it into Spanish because the words they have are quite a bit different, more meaningful than what we have in English. So I love the chair. I love the pulpit. You can't say stuff like that in, in other languages. And so likewise, Greek, of course, is, uh, we'll use the word agape. Agape meaning divine love. And it's a great word. It's far more powerful than the English word love. However, hate is agape to the 10th degree. So you take uh, our word love and run it to the 10th degree, you can come up with agape, and then agape to the 10th degree, so to speak, can be hate. 
So in other words, this is God. Matter of fact, whenever you have the words in your King James Bible, loving kindness, again, uh, that's not a word. Look it up in the dictionary. It doesn't exist, but it exists all through your King James Bible. King James invented it. It's a run-on word. There's no space there. L-O-N-V-I-N-G-K-I-N-D-N-E-S-S. It's just a run-on, long word, and it is translating hate. I mean, translating chesed. Uh, and a lot of times, chesed is translated as mercy. And a lot of times, like uh, NIV will translate it as loyal love. Uh, what is chesed? It is, it is divine, loyal, covenantal attachment. It is the most powerful attachment you can imagine where God connects to his creation. Chesed. They told me that <laughs> some in this room will appreciate this. Anybody ever get tired of those grandparent stories? Grandparents bragging about their grandkids? Yeah, I, I used to, oh, come on. You guys are nuts. That's so uh, some of y'all know my older brother, Tom. He says, now, when those grandbabies come, he says, I promise you. He said, you're not going to believe this, but it, when you hold them in your, I get some nods. When you hold them in your arms, he said, I promise you there's going to be something wash over you. He said, you're going to have a divine love wash. He said, all right. <laughs> he said, you're going to feel it. And of course, I know what it is to hold a newborn. And that was awesome. But my goodness gracious, when I held a grandbaby, <laughs> it's on another level. This divine love wash. It's, it's chesed. God invented, or God is chesed by definition, and he, he pours it into us when we need it. Pam and I had such an amazing bond of love that would keep us for all these many, many years through unbelievable trials and adversity. And finally, July 5th, she started coming back to me. And uh, for a season there, for five weeks, I had her. I had her without the psychosis. And tragically, the pain came back because the psychosis, when she was psychotic, she had no arthritic pain. But it seems like now with that deterioration neck and back, you can imagine spinal cord inflamed, the pain being so severe that it seemed like the neurological pathways got altered. And Reese, that, that's been one explanation, Neuro, neurological pathways altered. And rather than going to the pain center, came to the amygdala, to the anxiety anger center, and the anxieties overflowed. And, and so regardless, I got her back, even though she was bound with unbelievable pain. The un, just move her in bed and she would she'd cry out. And, but at least, honestly, uh, the arthritic pain was not as severe as the psychotic pain. And so we had her back. And so for the first time in over two years, I had a conversation with her. And that was so awesome. It went like this, because this was a standard. I call her every morning at 10 a.m. And, uh, hey, Pam, how'd you sleep last night? And here's my first conversation after two and a half years. She said, oh, I slept okay. How did you sleep? For the first time in two and a half years, I got something coming back at me. And so uh, <laughs> there she was starting to return. And about three weeks later, I looked at the, uh, the, the phone I was on and I commented, Pam, 
We have been talking 13 minutes. It's been 13 minutes of conversation. This is so awesome. 13 minutes with not a single reference to any what I called nonsense. I didn't call it psychotic or psychosis. We haven't had any nonsense in 13 minutes. Congratulations. This has been the most awesome conversation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so uh, then uh, during that season, this is what happened. I'd walk into the home that God blessed us with. It's another amazing story. I'd turn the corner, and miraculous story it is. And uh, I would walk into the room, and there, customarily, she was never asleep, though she could look and act like she's asleep. And her eyes are closed, and I'd stand there, and she'd sense me. And the eyes would open, and she would light up, and she would say, Oh, there you are. Yes, baby doll, here I am. I promise you I'd be here. It's 5 o'clock, and, and here I am. But the amazing thing was when our eyes would lock, it was as if we were newlyweds. It truly was if we were new, newlyweds after 43 years of marriage. And uh, there is our eyes and our hearts locked. So that's what God blessed us with was particularly in our early years, five years before the RA set in, but during those five years was incredible chesed. It was just absolutely divine. How that, uh, how that even in our wedding ceremony, people commented it felt like heaven. The presence of God was so strong in them. It was chesed. God does that. God gives mama chesed. God gives grandparents chesed. It's a, it's a love wash in the human existence where that this incredible euphoria just comes out of nowhere I did not expect it. I confess when I held my grandson, I thought my brother was nuts. There's no divine love wash. He's crazy. I'm not going to be a goofy granddad bragging about grandkids as the smartest, the best, and you know, all that stuff. I'm not doing that. My grandkids aren't going to be treated any. Well, that was a joke. <laughs> my, my, son, my son laughs now. He said, man, when I was their age, I didn't get by with nothing. You let them by with everything. <laughs> They go home bragging, we can go to Popo's and never get a spanking. We never get spanked at Popo's, yeah. So, but at any rate, yeah. <laughs> Grandparents, it's a, it's a blast, I promise. It's, it's chesed at work. So that's what happens when mommy has just given uh, birth for joy. She is now filled with joy when she sees baby. Baby's being brought to her, deliveries just happened, Baby is just there with arm, within, you know, a small distance and then arm's reach. Mommy is euphoric in joy. She sees baby. First emotion baby feels now is joy because it senses mommy's happy that I'm here. When mommy's happy that baby's here and baby senses that, again, it's, it's, uh, it's not just the five senses, but it's intu intuition working and other stuff. Baby feels joy. First emotion. And then baby is placed upon mommy for the very closest place from which it had come on mommy's belly right there where it had come from moments earlier. And then it's given suck to be able to be nourished some and draw from mommy. This comes incredible attachment as the second emotion emerges in baby of love. 
And love then is the bonding emotion, the attachment, 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 uh, chesed at work between mommy and baby. And then as daddy enters in to the picture, baby is slowly, you know, year three and so, first year baby thinks it's, it's an, it is still attached to mommy. After about year one, it begins to discover that it's, it's separate from mommy. It's not just a piece of mommy attached, but it's now taking on its own identity. As it's learning its identity, let me say also out of identity comes character. So now baby shapes in identity, especially when daddy gets into the picture and baby senses there's difference between mommy and daddy. And of course, this is so important. This is so important where we have biologically functioning families. It's such a wonderful thing that we raise families God's way and we provide such security into the child and the child has the gift early on of a secure identity. There's nothing stronger we can give a child than its secure identity. So where's the identity come from? It comes from the joy and the love. And then the third piece is community. The first piece of community is mommy to baby. Again, a lot of times that's not even known as a separate entity but it's identity, particularly when daddy's involved. Now the little community is mommy, daddy, baby. I mean, that's idealistically speaking. It's, you know, not that way 100%, but at any rate, idealistically speaking, uh, we have an identity being shaped through the community. And then the four, and now that the identity's being shaped, it's then that, that's how the, the individual will live in its own identity. And uh, from its identity, now it's going to perceive the world and it's going to interact in the world according to its identity, which, of course, is influenced by its image, how it sees itself. And so it's going to live life out of its identity. So the identity is continually in flux until death. Even still today, my identity is, is massaged and worked who I am. I'm still learning and being shaped, I pray, into a new human being. <laughs> Day by day, the Bible says, renewed day by day. So then brings us to the fourth thing that shapes the identity uh, of, the, of the newborn, and that being shame. Not negative shame, that's destructive, but positive affirming shame that shapes the identity. So it goes like this. I grab my son by the arms. I look him straight in the eyes. And he's seven or eight years old. And I say, son, I love you more than I could ever say. You are my son. You will always be my son. And uh, you are precious to me and will always be precious. It's going to be that way. But, you know, we did something that wasn't pleasing to God. And I take on responsibility with him. We, we failed here and we look at it. And really what we did was kind of stupid, wasn't it? Had to do over. We wouldn't do what we did. You know, whatever it may be. We swiped a piece of bubble gum out of the rack at the store. I don't know. But whatever we did, we displeased God. We displeased. And what we did was shame the community identity, the corporate identity. And so we have to work on that. That's the project here. And through loyal, covenantial, attachment relationship, I can influence his identity. And now through positive shame. This is not who we are. This is not how we behave. 
We are the Butler family. We don't leave our shopping carts out in the middle of the parking lot. We always take them back because we're responsible. You know, did I hit anybody there? We're, we're responsible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what have you. So I reaffirm who we are, the corporate identity. And then again, I affirm who he is. You're my son. You're always going to be my son. And we're attached. We're bonded. We're going to make it through this together. We're going to come through the other side. And through positive shame, not again the negative stuff that's a guilt trip, condemnation that doesn't work. In the positive affirming, I can reshape his identity. So the four ways we've learned, particularly through infant, through childhood, is by joy, by love, by community, and by shame. Then we learned that this is literally how we continue to learn. So as I, my right brain is being developed first, and slowly my left brain begins to develop, of which incidentally uh, is not developed until minimum of age 25, all the way up to age 32, left brain, frontal cortex is in development. I'm not a mature adult until scientifically around age 32. So isn't it interesting? Anybody know what happens to insurance rates, car rates uh, at about age 25? Yeah, and what's that build on? Is that build on psychological research? Not a lick of psych research in there. That's built strictly on statistics, right? That they know that at age 25, kids are no longer going to be crashing cars like what they do when they're 24. <laughs> that finally they get, they, don't, they didn't put it like this, but it's maturity. They come to a sense of judgment. They got judgment now. Their brains have matured to the place where, again, they're not crashing cars. But again, it's not by psychological research. Now, by psychological research, we know this stuff. That's done strictly by statistics. And so, again, I absolutely, this, you know, here's in my crawl. In our church, we have a lady that is with Kaiser and uh, in the endocrinology department required to give shots to people that were seeking sex uh, change. And uh, she couldn't do it. She simply couldn't put those shots into kids because she said they're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old coming in for a sex change and the parents have, don't have anything, any idea about it. And it's absolutely mutilating to the, to the human as well as permanent for the rest of their life. And 100% of everyone that enters into that pathway will suffer with depression and, if not attempting suicide, will have thoughts of suicide. 100% suicidal because of the powerful ramifications of going through all that, all that stuff. And she said, I can't do it. Morally, I can't do it. And she talked to a co-worker that was giving shots for her whenever it was necessary. And the co-worker did it and allowed Stella then to keep her job until she was transferred into another department. But that's what our culture does to people that don't even have a mature mind yet well enough to make a choice. To me, that's violating. That, that is abuse. That's abusive in, in our culture. I, I could call it child abuse. It feels to me like it is. And uh, just pitiful. But at any rate, we now know that, again, we are reaching maturity at the, around the age 25. But even still, to this very day, the learning systems are still the same. That I learn first right brain and then goes left brain. I learn through joy, love, community, and identity. Again, that's shaping my character. And after it processes through there, then it can have access to my left brain, 
where it can begin to get processed into frontal cortex and memory and processing uh, like our logical brains will operate. So here's the twist. Mr. Michael Hendricks said, I spent 20 years trying to make disciples on left brain principles. Right. And, and we do this. I've done it for 20 years in our church that we have discipleship class. We organize discipleship. We do all this, you know, program type teaching. And we require, uh, we require 40 weeks. We have five eight-week courses where we are, before we let somebody on our platform and participate in leadership because we want solid disciples in the leadership of the church. And so the uh, problem is all that's left brain. All that is not working the path that God built us. And so how then should we make disciples? We should make disciples by engaging right brain before we do left brain and by prioritizing right brain more than even we do left brain. In other words, we should create and allow an atmosphere of joy. We should celebrate when we see one another and especially new people that we don't know, and here they are the first time and then the second time, that they feel welcome beyond welcome, that, they, that we are, you know, we're the mommy that's just giving birth, and we are so excited that they're, and genuinely excited because it's Hesed at work, excited that they are here, and then let them find a bit of attachment as they're newborn into this church family, and we nurture them, hallelujah, in love and love and more love. And, and we're there. Sometimes the, we give them the most attention in their first and second and third weeks of being newborn. And, and they need us the most third, third week and beyond is when they really need the attention. So how do we make disciples? And I am offering here tonight, yes, we continue with the logical piece but we prioritize maybe a brand new system in front of the logical developments wherein we embrace joy and love and community and community identity, that this is who we are and we're celebrating this is who we are. We're celebrating, in our family, we celebrate, that's a word we use, we celebrate the family of IPC and International Pentecostal Church. We celebrate our time together, we celebrate this, these choice moments that we have here for a short season on this Sabbath. And we always emphasize the Sabbath as being bringing honor to him, that we put Paul's in life because he's the priority. This is our identity. This is how we live. We seek first him. We put him first. A token of him being first is our finance. We'll get around to that. And, and, but we review a lot of this time at the offering time. A lot of this, we'll review it and re reiterate how that we are the family of God and we are so privileged. And so we always greet one another and love one another and hug one another. And, and uh, in our culture, there's lots and lots of hugs. Part of that's because of the Latino and, and some of the others because of the Asian, the Indian and the other types of cultures that are not resistant to that. As a matter of fact, need it that everybody needs a hug, it's been said. And so in our culture, uh, it, in uh, California, in, in L.A., it's just a family feeling when we come together. We feel like family. 
And so it is a culture of joy and love and community. And then, of course, there is the positive reinforcements that we seek biblically, that uh, we have freedom to support one another. We have uh, uh, started a program. We call it Free Indeed. And uh, Free Indeed now is a pocket of men, a pocket of women, a pocket of youth men, a pocket of youth ladies, wherein they gather in little tiny pockets, little tiny groups. They go through a curriculum and they are processing, utilizing, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. And in confidentiality, in very, very small little area, they will process one another's pain and therein they find incredible connectivity and strength. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. It has to be very well and carefully governed because it can spin out of control in weird ways. But still, it's biblical Amen. that we confess our faults one to another and thereby we find healing as we find safe zones, safe areas. Tragically, not everybody in a church is safe. <laughs> Some places in churches are, you know, <sighs> they, they're sick, they're not well, and they're unsafe. But uh, when we develop cultures of whole people, healing people heal others. Hurting people hurt others. And if we have a bunch of emotionally unstable, emotionally unhealthy people, then they, they can't reach spiritual maturity, nor can they really help process blessing and helping others. And so the culture of the church is extremely important. How do disciples make disciples? How do you get the job done? I believe that as we create the culture, that's like Jesus Christ. And the very best place to discover that is in Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gives it to us and delineating that we don't let manipulation govern us, contempt govern us, lust govern us, the base elements govern us, but rather he gives us uh, keys of how to be shaped into being like him, where we become little Jesuses on the inside. Nobody's perfect. Nobody gets it 100%, but he gives us the ideal and uh, how to overcome this matter of looking down my nose at somebody, this matter of ranking how that I rank by appearance or by background or, you know, pedigree or whatever all those ranks are. He tosses ranking right out the window. He, he just says there is no ranks in the kingdom. It's everybody on equal turf and everybody has access. That's exactly what the Beatitudes are about. Right. He says everybody, you, the morning, they usually don't have access to the good stuff. It's usually only the elite. In, in the Jewish culture, the aristocrats are the ones that, you know, get the good stuff. But he says, no, no, the mourners, they're going to be comforted. No, no, those who are disenfranchised are going to be blessed. Those who are the outcast are really the blessed ones. Why? Because all of them now get to have this elite programming by Almighty God. They have access to kingdom of God. The elite only thought they had to have access, particularly in Judaism. But now Jesus says it's open to everybody. Everybody come <laughs> That He throws ranking right out the window and says there is no rank. If you think there's rank, then you really aren't in the kingdom. And uh, you're not following the kingdom ethic. And so as we let joy operate and love operate and build community of a culture of what I call kingdom ethic. Incidentally, there's one primary descriptor of kingdom ethic where James tells us it's a royal law. That's royal. Anybody know what royal means? Kingdom, right? Yeah. 
royal law of what? James, what is it? Is it 2 2? The royal law of, oops, I almost said it. Royal law, say it, brother. Love. love. The royal law of love, which you've, we've heard from the beginning, which is to, anybody know what that royal law of love is? To specifically in the text, now this is surprising, it doesn't say that you love. The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment. No, no, it's not. That's not it. The law of the kingdom, the royal law of love, is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing mentioned about loving God. Isn't that amazing? The royal kingdom ethic is to love one another. Didn't Jesus tell us that? To be my disciples. You're going to love one another. John, what, 15, 8? James 2 and 8 is the passage I'm referencing. The royal law of love, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. So intrinsic in that verse is you got to love yourself. Incidentally, to love myself requires me to love Father and let Father love me with his chesed. When I get this, that I am in a love bond covenant relationship with Almighty God, I have nothing to worry about. Everything is in well, perfect shape, care. Father's going to manage this whole business when I trust Him. Father's going to take care of me, and it's going to be okay. He does all things well. He never makes mistakes. So let me just live in this chesed at peace in Him. Father's in control. And so... Now I can have a secure attachment with him. The problem is we have so much baggage because many of us uh, had fathers who were aloof, removed, whatever. I came from a very functional home. I graduated from high school with buddies I went to first grade with. Very stable, praise God. But my dad, he was an incredible, wonderful man. Brother John Romine knew him well. He was just a pillar in the home church. He literally ran 40 teams of volunteers as the primary contractor behind the building there in Indianapolis. Dad built that and served Brother Urshan on his board, served Brother Larson on his board, served Brother Mooney on his board, and is the man that gave Brother Mooney the keys to the church when Brother Mooney was elected. That's my dad. But coming up, he was on the tractor, when he wasn't at the office, working. He worked, 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 worked. And he was a wonderful father, but he was somewhat detached. My point is, I don't care who we are, we got flawed dads. And I can learn about Heavenly Father through my earthly father. And there's many in this room that have extreme other types of stories that your dad wasn't just out working. He may have been out drunk or out running or out, you know, whatever. Or in some cases, completely gone. We got people in our church who don't know who their dad is, literally. And, and so we learn about Heavenly Father first through our natural fathers, and we come with a flawed natural dad, and we think Heavenly Father's flawed. Well, Heavenly Father's not flawed, and when I finally do what Jesus said, what Jesus say? Call no man Father. You have only one Father, which is Heavenly Father, 
Your father in heaven is your only daddy. He gave us permission for every one of us to discount our flawed dads. It doesn't matter if he's a good flawed dad or a bad flawed dad. You can give him up and say, sorry, that's not who I'm attached to. I'm glad to say, Brother John, when my dad was about 70 and I was 45, I used to call him with all my problems and dad said, Dan, don't call me anymore on your problems. I said, why not, Dad? You, I've always done this. I've done this. You've been my sounding board. I need you. He said, well, I don't want to hear your problems anymore. I said, why not? And then as I drilled in, I think he really gave me an excuse. I don't think he's telling me the whole story, but he said, I just don't trust my judgment anymore. Don't ask me. Don't ask me your stuff anymore. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm abandoned. <laughs> and, and finally, at age 45, I grew up enough to figure out Heavenly Father is really my father. Amen. And I teach the kids in our church that don't know who their dads are, you're so blessed because you don't have that interference that's the natural biological system working. You can just go ahead and attach to Heavenly Father early on and grow into that mature relationship with Him and not wait till you're 45 years old and your dad bails out or whatever. So at any rate, when I get my secure identity in relationship to Heavenly Father, now that I'm secure in Him, and of course, I'm here's, what, here's again, Sermon of the Mount, hearing and doing everything that Father says to where I can be perfect even as Heavenly Father is perfect. That's a, that's a strong one right there. It's, the, it's the, uh, the Greek word teleos pointing to the end that I see where I'm to arrive. Eventually, I'm to be like Him. When the, when the work's complete, it's perfect. Perfect and complete's the same word, basically. Now I reach perfection. I reach completion. Completion is when I'm finally like Him. That's His will for my life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we're all in the process. Amen. But in the meantime, I am a disciple making disciples. That's what my job is. Who am I? Well, I'm a disciple. I am His disciple. What is my job? To make disciples. And how do I get the job done? I get it by processing right brain activity and learning to shape brand new disciples, first by right brain, and then moving them into left brain processes to make them strong and stable in Jesus' name. There's my whole, ever how long it was. <laughs>